the Antichrist is an interesting character in the, and a major player in the end time events. His main purpose is to acquire power and turn people away from God by directing worship toward himself. He accomplishes all of this through what he creates. The Antichrist essentially creates three things during the end times. He creates a one world government. Uh, The reason I think what we'll see given for the need for a one world government will be growing problems like global terrorism, international conflict, poverty, things which cannot be controlled by any one nation. The growing problems in our global community will require a worldwide united government to handle all of these problems. The person who heads this government will ultimately grow in power through personal charm and increasing use of force. He will describe, disguise his true motives in the beginning and will greatly appeal to the masses, as we'll see. Secondly, the Antichrist will create a one-world economy. We'll talk later today in the message about the mark of the beast, the mark tied to people's ability to buy and sell in, in the time where the Antichrist rises to power in order to have a bank account, get a job, to be able to buy necessities for life will require you to take the mark of the beast. But to take the mark, you must pledge yourself to worship the Antichrist and display your loyalty to his government. That's what the mark is. Thirdly, the Antichrist will create a one world religion. Conveniently, the Antichrist himself is the center of this one world religion. Uh, increasingly in our culture, we see religion seen as the major source of conflict in the world. This idea will increase until we get to the time of the tribulation period. At this point, the Antichrist will come upon the scene with an answer to all of the problems with religion by convincing the world he is the God every religion has been pointing to by their various names. They've been worshiping him all along. And so religious conflict will end as religious people devote themselves to the worship of the beast. When you look at all the Antichrist will do, the question we can ask is how could one person do all of these things? God's Word gives us the answer to this question. So open your Bible, Revelation 13, page 956 in your pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. I'm just going to read the first ten verses today. We'll look at the first ten verses next week as well. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten crowns, and on his head were blasphemous names. And the beast I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like that of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. I saw one of his heads as if it had been fatally wounded. And his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? A mouth was given to him, speaking arrogant words and blasphemies. And authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle. That is, those who dwell in heaven. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given to him over every tribe and people and language and nation. 
All who live on the earth will worship Him. Everyone whose name has not been written since the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slaughtered. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with a sword, with a sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. Title today is The Characteristics of the Antichrist. Let's pray. Father, we love you today. You are great and glorious, wonderful and worthy. So much more worthy than our minds can comprehend. So much more worthy than our mouths can declare. Father, today we do pray for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. Protect them. Give them courage. And remain faithful. Do what needs to be done in their midst. Gotta. At us, forgive us. Forgive us for the lax way in which we've served you. Forgive us for the casual nature of our devotion to Jesus. Forgive us for the lack of urgency about sharing the gospel. Forgive us for being so easily dissuaded from doing the things you want us to do. Out of the service this morning. Work in us and strengthen us. Help us and encourage us. Let your spirit do a work in our hearts that would ensure we are never the same. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We aren't really going to dig deep into Revelation 13 this morning. We are just going to kind of skim the surface of this and look at some other passages. The reason for this is there is an awful lot about the Antichrist that has come before Revelation 13 that in a lot of ways is important to understand so we can fully understand what we're seeing in these first ten verses of Revelation 13. Uh, And it's possible I could have worked it all into one sermon, all of these other passages and everything in there, uh, but it would have likely been a a very, very long message, and and we all know how I like to keep my sermons short and sweet and to the point. Uh, And so today... What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you quickly ish six characteristics of the Antichrist. Right? Six characteristics of the Antichrist we find in God's Word. First, the Antichrist will be a man of, of great wickedness. Now, this is probably not any surprise to us that the Antichrist, because I mean, literally, he's called the Antichrist, so he is going to be a man of great wickedness. But here's the the, the twist: he won't appear this way at first. Instead, initially, he will appear as a good guy who can solve all the problems of the world. But looks are deceiving. That Second Thessalonians, he is called a man of lawlessness and the lawless one. So the question could become, how could a man who is lawless and who is a man of sin appear to be a good guy? Well, it's because he's tricky. Right? Daniel tells us this about him. And in the latter period of their domain, when the wrongdoers have run their course, a king will arise insolent and skilled and intrigue. The NIV translates skilled and intrigue as a master of intrigue. And the idea of being skilled and intrigue or a master of intrigue is similar to Ephesians 6.11 where we're warned against the schemes of the devil. It's the same thing. right? He is Just as the devil is a, a schemer and as the devil is has his wiles to trick and deceive people, so the Antichrist will be skilled in these sort of wiles and this sort of of intrigue. And as any sort of schemer or a master of intrigue, 
the Antichrist has an end game in mind. He is not just going through the motions and making things up as he goes along. There is a one particular ultimate plan he has. And he will do whatever it takes to make this plan come to pass. Here is his ultimate plan. He's going to oppose and exalt himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. The Antichrist's ultimate goal is to be worshipped as God. We see in verse 4 that the, they, the people of earth, they worship the dragon because he gives his authority to the beast. And in verse 8, all who live on the earth will worship him, the, the beast or the Antichrist, whose name has not been written uh, in the book of life from the foundation of the world. He is so committed to his plan of being worshipped as God, he will crush anyone who rises in opposition to him. Look at verse 7 of Revelation 13. It is also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given to him over every tribe and people and language and nation. Right, the, the Antichrist makes a worldwide war. He wages worldwide war with the disciples of Jesus who will not worship him. And he slaughters them. And while the, the disciples of Jesus in this time are, are slaughtered by the Antichrist and his minions, all the people of the world will see it. This is not going to be something that, that happens on the down low and no one knows about it. This will happen openly. This will happen almost like on the news. And the world will see it and the world will rejoice. Right? They're not just going to be like, oh, I think that's a little too far. They are going to like it. They're going to agree with it. They're going to think this is a good thing. But notice, notice what it says. That he does this to disciples of Jesus of every tribe, every people, every language, and every nation. This won't merely be in some far off country that we might have a problem finding on a map or pronouncing. It won't be in some place like Afghanistan where there is a, a violent Muslim element rising up. No, it will be in every country of the world. It will be in countries like France and England and Canada and even the United States of America. One of the reasons people will think it's a good idea to murder disciples of Jesus it's because it would be difficult to know he's a schemer because, like all schemers, he is a slick speaker. His ability to speak and say what people once said will account for much of his success. Daniel tells us the king will do as he pleases. He will exalt himself, boast against every god, speak dreadful things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the indignation is finished because that which is determined shall be done. Now compare that, Revelation 13, 5 and 6. A mouth was given to him speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is those who dwell in heaven. Now, the idea about speaking arrogant words, I think that's translated different, different ways in different versions. My Bible has a note that says it speaks. he speaks great things. So the idea of him speaking arrogant or great things is he's kind of given this vision of the way the world could be. This perfect utopia environment that would exist if everyone would just follow him. Because he is, of course, God. 
Right? I mean, and that's the key. To us, the idea of him speaking blasphemies doesn't sound like eloquent speech, but to unbelievers, to unbelievers in this day, his blasphemy of claiming to be God, the arrogant words that he speaks, it is going to be music in their ears. The blasphemies will be things they they want to hear. He will be saying, like every politician of our day, he will be saying exactly what the people want to hear. They will love what he is saying. They will cheer for him. They will think it is the greatest thing they have ever heard. His eloquent speech will be a cover for his great wickedness. And the people of the world will eat it up. He will not only be a man of great wickedness, the Antichrist will be a man of great Power. It seems hard looking around right now to believe someone could be such an eloquent speaker that he could convince the world he was God, convince the world to worship him, and convince the world it was a good idea to murder disciples of Jesus. Well, he does this because he has more than words going for him. He has great power. Second Thessalonians tells us that His coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders with the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they do not accept the love of the truth as to be saved. The Antichrist will come with great power and signs and lying wonders. All the the, the masterful power and deceptive power Satan can muster. In many ways, the Antichrist will be to Satan what Jesus is to God the Father. Just as Jesus came performing miracles through the power of God, the Antichrist will come performing miracles through the power of Satan. Now, nowhere in the Bible does it tell us every kind of power and miracle and wonder he will perform. But there is one in particular in this chapter we're told about. And it's and it's a not a mockery, but is a mimicking of Jesus. Because in a lot of ways, that's really all Satan does in this time, is, is he mimics Jesus, mimics God. Now, you know, there is one miracle. Jesus did a lot of miracles, but there is one miracle that stands head and shoulders above all the rest. It is a miracle so significant, we have a, a holiday where we celebrate it. And that is his resurrection. The Antichrist will also have a resurrection. Look at verse 3. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been fatally wounded, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after him, and they worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to wage war against him? One of the signs and wonders the Antichrist will perform is a resurrection. Now, I, I can't say for certain how this will happen, the Bible doesn't tell us, but given the response, right? His, he has this fatal wound, it's healed. And the earth, the whole earth is amazed and follow after him. So from that, if we just take that, I think we could say this would be a very public spectacle. right? And that whatever happens will all be a part of the plan. So you might imagine, for instance, I can imagine the Antichrist being on a world stage. All the news agencies are focused on him. He's giving this massive press conference. And from a roof... Across the way, a sniper shoots, hits him in the head, and he falls down dead. And the the whole world is watching live as it happens. Oh, no! Oh, no. And then a few, maybe a few days later, he's pronounced dead. A few days later, he comes out feeling much better now. 
And again, God's word doesn't say that's what will happen. But it's not hard to imagine what happens will be something similar because the result is all the world marveling after him. Right. So whatever happens will have to be spectacular. It won't be able to be something where like they come back and say, oh, he, he died and y'all didn't see it. But now he's better. It's going to have to be something the world sees and then the world believes. And they're going to be so impressed by his power in rising from the dead and from the dragon for giving him this power. They're going to conclude who is like the beast and who is able to wage war against him. We, in essence, what they're saying is we better get on his side. If we don't get on his side, we're all going to be destroyed. No one can overcome that. Look at the power of the beast. Look at the power of this man. He, he is God. And so humanity will be awed by his miracles and awed by his resurrection And they will worship him and they will obey him no matter what he says, even if what he says is to kill disciples of Jesus who will not worship him. The Antichrist will be a man of great power. The Antichrist will also be a man of great influence. When you take a man who is supremely eloquent and extremely powerful, you get a man who will be tremendously influential. How influential will he be? Well, he'll be so influential, he'll be able to bring world peace book of Daniel that prophesies about him. He will confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. And on the wing of abominations will come the one who makes desolate until complete destruction. One that is decreed gushes forth on the one who makes desolate. He makes a covenant with many. Now, most believe that the way this will kind of work is Israel will be a central figure in this. Right. Daniel would almost certainly have Israel in mind as a part of this. Um, and so what he does is he, 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 he issues a something where there is peace, I would say, like, say, in the Middle East. Imagine if someone could, could barter a peace between Israel and Palestine, the Palestinians. And all the Arab nations, they suddenly decided pushing Israel off the map wasn't the way to go. That they could, after all, all be united and worship together. And and Israel was for it and the Arabs were for it. Well, if someone could usher in that kind of a peace over there, other people would start to listen to what he had to say, wouldn't they? Because keep in mind, at this point, he's probably probably not like a massive world leader at this point. He's coming on the scene. He's bringing this peace. Well, now he's just a... A guy who's brought this peace in the Middle East. And, but he's promising he has a plan and a path of peace that, that goes beyond the Middle East. Because it's more than just with Israel and say a few others. He, he, he makes a covenant with many. right? It, it becomes, what it does is it kind of spreads into this worldwide peace pact. And everyone on the earth signs off for it. And in this moment, he he has promised world peace, and then he he delivers it. And when he delivers world peace, other leaders of the world will abdicate their positions of leadership to him, and they will thus make him the the leader of the world. Let me let me show you this. Daniel says, "The fourth beast, I will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms." Will devour the whole earth, trample it, crush it. His his kingdom will cover the whole earth. And in his place of the spigot, another Daniel reference 
a despicable person will arrive on whom the, the majesty of kingship has not been conferred, but he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. He comes peaceably and he seizes the kingdom by intrigue. Now, the intrigue is very similar to what we've already seen about him being a master of intrigue. But, but think about these verses with him bringing this peace and it covering the nation. Consider these two passages in light of what John says in Revelation 17. Look at Revelation 17, verse 12 and 13. The ten horns which you saw, right? So again, this is connecting back to 13. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings and with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose and they give their power and authority to the beast. So the beast rises to power. He's influential, he's powerful, he's causing peace. But he's not the world leader yet. And in this time, there are ten nations, ten men, ten people in these ten nations who are not yet risen to power. And as the beast is making this peace and coming upon the scene, they rise to power and they serve with the beast for a little while. But they only have risen to power for one purpose. That is to give their power and their authority to the beast. And they abdicate their leadership. They say, he did this. He should rule us all. And so they abdicate their leadership, their positions of power to the beast. And and essentially at this point, he becomes the one world leader. Of course, again, this all goes back to the fact that he's God. So that makes good sense that you would give all of your leadership to God. And... As he does this, the whole world goes along with it. The whole world says that is that's the greatest idea we've ever heard. This is what we've all been waiting on. He is a man of great influence that all the leaders of the earth will abdicate their power to him. And all the people of the earth will think that is a great idea. The Antichrist will also be a man of great prosperity. Prosperity is a huge part of this guy's platform as well. Revelation 18 details the, the destruction of the kingdom he builds. And the people of the earth and the kings of the earth weep over the destruction of the kingdom largely because of the prosperity and the lifestyle it brought them. One verse best sums up the overall picture of the kingdom. The kings of the earth who committed acts of sexual immorality and lived luxuriously with her will weep and mourn over her when they see the smoke of her burning. The committed acts of sexual immorality lived luxuriously is the best description of the kingdom this guy builds. It describes the quality of life he gives to those who follow him. I would say sexual immorality probably would refer to all kinds of physical pleasure and luxuriously signifies great wealth. Pretty much the rest of Revelation 18 elaborates on that verses 9 through 19. So basically what this guy offers is wealth and pleasure, right? So if you if he's the leader and everybody follows him, then what he will give to the world is a life of pleasure. You will get to live a pleasure-filled life and and essentially do whatever you want to do because you will have wealth abundantly. 
But there is a key. There is a catch to taking part in the pleasure and the prosperity of this kingdom. Look at Revelation 13, 16 and 17. And it causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free and the slave, to be given the mark on their right hands or on their foreheads. And he decrees that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. So to be a part of this peaceful, prosperous, pleasure-filled kingdom, you must take the mark of the beast. And this is an option. You have to take it. If you don't take it, you can't buy or sell. You can't have a bank account. You, you can't have a job. You won't be able to buy or sell anything. No, no gas, no food, no water, no paying the electric bill, no necessities of life. So the choice before you in this time is take this mark and live a life of pleasure and prosperity or reject the mark and be unable to buy or sell <clears throat> or provide for your family in any way. Now this, this mark is seen as a Test of loyalty to the kingdom. Now, I don't know if I can prove it works out this way, but let me tell you again how I imagine it would probably work out. So if you disagree with this, you're free to. I think the mark comes after the resurrection. Because if the Antichrist, right, if he's going to declare war on the saints of God all over the earth, then they have to be seen as the enemy. And to be seen as the enemy, they have to do more than just preach Jesus and say, this guy's not God. What do they have to do? Well, they probably have to be blamed for shooting him, right, if he's shot. His, his death is related to them. They get the blame. Kind of like the emperor who burned down Rome and blamed the Christians for it. So now they're the enemies of the state. And so your choices, your choices are to align yourself with those who are trying to destroy peace and prosperity and pleasure, or align yourself with the beast. And in order to align yourself with the beast, you have to take this mark, and it is a pledge of loyalty. It is an act of worship to the beast, a pledge of loyalty to the kingdom he is building. And because it is an act of worship, because it is a pledge of loyalty, it cannot be taken half-heartedly. What I mean by that is one will not be able to say, well, I have a family to provide for. So I'm going to take the mark to make sure they're okay. But in my heart, I don't mean it. I worship Jesus, not the beast. You can't do that. The mark cannot be taken half-heartedly. How can I be sure? Look at Revelation 14, verse 9. Then another angel one third followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength. In the cup of his anger, he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast... And his image, whoever receives the mark 
of His name. Those who receive the mark damn themselves to hell for all of eternity. Look at verse 12. Here's the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandment of God and their faith in Jesus. Disciples of Jesus persevere in faith and faithfulness to Jesus regardless of the cost. And if it means they can't buy and sell, if it means they are beheaded, then so be it. We've already seen Jesus tell the church at Smyrna, you're suffering, it's going to get worse, be thou faithful unto death. He is not going to change His mind upon that. Disciples of Jesus not cannot take the mark. Those who are truly disciples of Jesus will not take the mark. Those who take it proven they are not really His disciples and they do condemn themselves for all of eternity. I had a discussion with a guy once and he told me that was, I mean, this is all really mythical. There's just no way any one person could come upon the scene and convince everyone in the world to take a mark like this. And that can that can make sense. I mean, we look at our culture. I mean, we can't even convince people to, to wear a mask or not wear a mask or vaccine or not vaccine. So imagine having to take a mark. Everybody has to in order to buy or sell. But imagine, imagine with me for a second. Imagine the world is in a really bad place. There's wars and rumors of wars. There's famines. There's earthquakes. There's terrible disasters. Animals rising up and killing people in cities. And a man comes upon the scene. And he becomes a kind of a world leader. And, and he says he can bring peace. Peace to the Middle East. Peace in the city streets. Peace everywhere. But he not only says it, he does it. He, he convinces the Jews and the Arabs to agree to a peace treaty that allows them to live together in harmony. He, he causes Congress to all get along. He causes all of the world leaders to agree to make him their leader. And, and under his leadership, Crime all but vanishes. And peace reigns throughout the world. Under His leadership, there is prosperity. No one is doing without. No one anywhere is doing without. Everyone has enough and more than enough. And under His leadership, the world is prosperous. The world is peaceful. And we essentially live a life of pleasure. And again, these aren't empty Campaign promises. He actually delivers on these things. What would the people of earth do for such a man? How would the people of earth respond to such a leader with such power and influence? And who essentially gave them everything they ever wanted. Well, we know. They would follow Him. They would worship Him. They would absolutely take His mark. People, the reality is, people we know and love would take 
his mark. It reminds me of the saying, the devil doesn't come dressed in a red cape with pointy horns. He comes as everything you've ever wanted. This is how the Antichrist comes. And the world will love him for it. But then, fifthly, the Antichrist will ultimately be defeated. I wanted to include this point. Because up to this point, everything can sound pretty down. Scary. I mean, surely, I think here, if we have just a a tiny amount of faith, we can see. If someone comes on the scene with this kind of power and does these kinds of things, the world will follow them, right? I mean, just think about it. He's going to have a religious leader that prophesies for him too. Think about our day. I mean, don't we see politicians who promise far less than the Antichrist can promise and deliver even less than they promise and people still blindly follow them? Don't we see religious leaders in our day prophesy things that do not happen? Proving according to God's word they are false prophets and people just throw their money at them. Woo! Glory to God! If they will do that to someone who can't do what they say, what will the world do for someone who can? Of course they will take the mark. Of course they will follow Him. Of course they will hunt disciples of Jesus down and murder them for their own prosperity. I mean, we see we see this sort of stuff happening on smaller scales all over, don't we? Aren't we willing to crush, not we as in those of us in this room, but collectively as humans, aren't we willing to crush anyone who would stand in the way of our own prosperity? Of course we are. Aren't we willing to to crush anyone who stands in the way of what we think is peace and what ought to be done? Of course we are. Won't we follow anyone who gives us what we want them to what we want, says what we like to hear? Of course we will. And when someone can deliver on those things, the world will go all out. And even though the world goes all out, it's not hopeless. It's not hopeless because Jesus wins. Then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will eliminate with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. The Antichrist will rule for a time, but his rule will end because Jesus will destroy him. Look look quickly, Revelation 19. saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war his eyes are a flame of fire and his head many crowns he has a name written on him which no one knows except he himself he's clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God and the armies which are in heaven clothed with fine linen white and clean were following him on white horses from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads 
the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun, cried with a loud voice, saying to the birds that fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great feast of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all people, both free and slave, small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And those were thrown in the lake of fire which burns with brimstone and the rest were killed with a sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. So there's this massive army, massive battle, Armageddon we call it. And they assemble. And there's not this massive battle where it's getting close. Jesus wins. It's not the picture. They assemble. And, and when the armies are assembled, Jesus just sort of rides over and grabs the beast and the Antichrist and tosses them into hell. Then Satan, in chapter 20, the dragon is taken. He's cast into the abyss where he is chained for a thousand years. Then there is the, the thousand year reign of peace under the reign of Christ. And at the end of that time the devil escapes. He's released. He comes out to try to deceive and destroy. And the devil, or verse 9, they came upon a broad plain. broad plain on the earth surrounded by the camp. The beloved city and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was thrown to the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. They'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then there's the throne of judgment. And the new Jerusalem comes down and we, we move into eternity. All of this is a picture of the end. Jesus wins. I saw something the other day. And I thought it was challenging to me because of this message I had already had planned. And he said if your eschatology, if your end times theology is, is focused on the Antichrist and built around fear. Instead of focused on Jesus and built around hope. You're doing it wrong. And so we want to be. The Antichrist is real. I think he is a legitimate person who is really going to rise up and do all of the things we have talked about. And we want to be wise as serpents as Jesus said. The reality is he loses. The reality is Jesus wins. And this is where our hope has to lie. We, our takeaway from all of this is not fear about what's coming. But hope because of Jesus. I, I asked Scott to lead us today in, in a mighty fortress is our God. Martin Luther wrote a mighty fortress is our God during the Reformation when all the power of the Catholic Church was against him to try to bring him in. To bring him into sort of judgment for his things he had written, things he had said. Let me just remind you of two verses and we'll close. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus. It is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same. He must win the battle. And although this world with devils filled, 
should threaten to undo us. We will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. Let's ensure our hope, our confidence is in Christ. Because as I understand the end times, the world is not going to get better. It is going to get worse. And fear, fear will abound. That that is one way the devil gets power. And there will be a threat and a temptation for us to let the fear the world feels cause us to live and act and believe like the world. But our hope is in Christ who ultimately wins. So we will not fear. Let's pray.